Hey everybody, I am Jason Crandall. Welcome to this special episode of Yoga Land. I just created a webinar called the Yoga Injury Matrix. And Andrea and I enjoyed the webinar so much and it was so well received that we decided that we would release it as this week's podcast. So what follows is a conversation in my experience of the eight most important components of minimizing the potential of injury in your yoga classes. And I think whether you're a teacher or a student, you'll get a lot of insight. My hope is that for those of you that teach yoga, these also just give you some really important bits of information uh, to help make sure that we're thinking about health and wellness and safety in the most effective and efficient way possible. I hope you enjoy the podcast. And as a reminder, I have just relaunched my online training, A Better Way to Flow Injury Management in the Yoga Room. It is really good, it is really valuable, and I would love for you to join it. You can learn more about uh, the course at learn.jasonyoga.com slash injuries. So without any further ado, here's the conversation. And even if you join me live for the webinar, first, thank you, uh, but second, I think I think that you would enjoy a re-listen. So enjoy the conversation and thanks for being part of our community, everybody. As a yoga teacher for nearly 30 years, I have in so many ways made a living on being on the more technical, bookish, anatomical side of the vinyasa yoga equation. I love emphasizing technique for so many different reasons, but I wanna tell you in my experience, alignment alone is really not the sole consideration when it comes to injury prevention. There's a couple reasons for this. One of them, everybody, is I think in the modern era, we've really come to terms with the reality that alignment is profoundly subjective to the individual and their sensory experience of the yoga practice. But also, there are just many other dynamics that I want to speak to you about that help to minimize the possibility of injuries or if overlooked, help to actually produce injuries in the yoga room. So in celebration of the relaunch of one of my favorite online courses, A Better Way to Flow, Injury Management and Prevention in the Yoga Room, I wanna share with you in my experience the eight most important concepts or practices for minimizing harm in the yoga room. Before we do this, I want to be realistic as I always am. We have bodies, we need to use them, we need to move them, we need to make sure that we're not afraid of them, we need to make sure we're not making students afraid of them. Probably nothing is more injurious for a body than not using it. I also want to acknowledge that there's probably nothing we can do to live in some impervious bubble where we don't have little challenges or injuries. They're gonna come up, they're part of life. So these best practices are really important, but we also have to be reasonable. We have bodies and sometimes they get a little bit dinged up. The other thing that I wanna do, just to make a real quick acknowledgement, everybody, before we move into these best practices, is I have been around the yoga world enough to promise you one thing. You can hurt yourself in any style of yoga that you do. And in any style of yoga that you do, you can adopt best practices 
to minimize harm. The first best practice, everybody, is to emphasize mindful, skillful alignment, but not to stop there. Now, I just said that I made my living as a yoga teacher, emphasizing alignment, I still do. And here's why fundamental techniques are important. Just think about the structural reliability of a building that has good, clean, well-structured lines, and think about the integrity of a building that is able to distribute the stressors and load efficiently that's placed on top of it. That's kind of how I think about when I think about fundamental alignment. When you have good technical precision in your poses, that helps to offload stressors and distribute them. And in so many ways, our body is a stress distributing device. And the more organized we are in yoga postures, the more we're able to distribute the stress that's being transmitted through the body, those mechanical stressors, and the greater we're able to withstand those demands. But like I said earlier, alignment, what we've really come to see is it's, it's incredibly subjective to the individual doing the posture. And so when we emphasize alignment, it isn't just about doing X, Y, or Z, or listening to this teacher or that style. It's about increasing our sensory and proprioceptive awareness of what's happening in our body and being able to listen to and respond to the real-time feedback of what's happening in our body. Now, this is actually a pretty refined skill set, uh, but it's something that we want to really be, be embarking on. The second thing, everybody, is kind of this interplay between pace, duration, and intensity, right? So the first thing we wanna have, just mindful, skillful alignment, where we're particularly attuned to the sensory experience of our body and we're responsive to the demands, not letting them be overly concentrated. But we also have to factor in the roles that pace, duration, and intensity play into this. So let's start with pace. I am mostly a vinyasa teacher, although I have a ton of technical background in Iyengar yoga. And I can tell you everybody that for, for me as a vinyasa yoga teacher, I have to be incredibly mindful that I help my students find a threshold of dynamic, continuous, rhythmic movement without going so fast that they feel rushed or that they can't actually perceive the sensory experience that they're having. If an incredibly important element of injury prevention is listening to what you actually feel and being responsive to it, we don't wanna move at a rate that we can't respond. It's kind of like tailgating someone, right? Like you're going down the highway and if you're too close at too quick of a speed, you're not gonna have the reaction time to be able to respond to the feedback correctly. Same thing, if you're doing really, if you're doing really fast flows, particularly if you're doing fast flows and you have heat and you have fatigue, and you're doing things where you're at a demand threshold, I don't wanna say those are bad things, they can be kind of fun and interesting, but those are often environments where 
it's difficult to perceive the sensations and respond to them because we're moving too quickly. The other thing that I want to acknowledge is the other side of the pace equation. You can, if you go really slow and stay in poses for a very long period of time, feel feedback. But remember duration, this is where duration comes in, duration is a magnifier, right? So if I put something in the oven at 200 degrees, it's gonna take a long time, but it's gonna get hot, it's gonna get cooked. And so what we kinda have to remember is that a long, slow, passive pose held for a long increment of time, number one, that duration can magnify intensity, and number two, kind of the inverse of going too quickly, Sometimes in the slower passive things, that duration actually can trick us into overriding our stretch reflex and overriding some of those sensations that are coming through us. And, and how many times have we kind of stay, stayed with a pose just a little too long? I can tell you everybody that a lot of people have had injuries, and I have had injuries, I know countless students who have had injuries from low-grade intensity held too long, and, the, and, and while doing so, overriding that feeling inside of, oh, this is difficult, maybe I should get out of here. So we kind of see pace, duration, but also in there, kind of in this matrix is intensity. I'm going to tell you something, I, I'm going to tell you this, I, I don't know, this is not like it's some grand sequence, I just haven't had an opportunity to say this out loud in front of people or a camera. So here it goes. I don't think I have ever felt good in my body in a backbend when I went, when I went 100% into that backbend. I have a handful of wear and tear injuries in my lower back. And I've never been a highly proficient backbender. I don't know if there's ever been a time where in camel, bow, Urdhva Dhanurasana, Vipra Dandasana, where I just decided I'm gonna go 100% max intensity and actually felt good as a result. I'm not saying I've injured myself every time I've done a demanding pose. And I'm not suggesting that you don't explore and work your edges. This is like, this is a really integral part of our practice. At the same time, I want to acknowledge to you that there's just a lot of times where 100% is too much. So when we're teaching yoga, we just kind of have to factor these concepts in skillful, somewhat subjective alignment, we have to think about pace, not too fast, not too slow. We have to kind of think about how does duration play in? Maybe we like slow practices, but you stay in something for a really long time, that's a force magnifier. And also in that force magnification, we sometimes, it's not that we stop paying attention, but we override some of our reflexes and can go a little bit too far. And then finally, everyone, we just kind of have to, as teachers, acknowledge intensity, which is something that most of us yoga teachers are 
often coaching up, like go a little further, a little deeper. These aren't bad things, but we have to consider that if we're doing them in context all the time, sometimes it can be a little bit much. The third thing is I feel like some of you listening to this are going to just sit back and clap and and just have like such a sense of relief that I'm going to say it. In others of you, it's going to be a wet, I'm going to be like a wet blanket buzzkill, but here goes. I think the yoga community in the context of this conversation, minimizing injuries would be well served to significantly minimize, probably even eliminate intensification adjustments. There are many ways to provide manual feedback and there are many ways to help our students verbally and manually understand technique and refinement and give more sensory feedback without pushing them deeper into a pose. And I know, I'm going to tell you this, I was a student of the Ashtanga world for a long time before I moved on for a handful of just personal reasons. I loved strong manual adjustments. And also, I got hurt really badly with a couple of strong manual adjustments. So intensification adjustments, they can be wonderful. They can have a breakthrough. They can be nice. I'm, I'm not denying that. And in the context of minimizing injuries, I can promise you that one of the best ways to minimize injuries is to not press people further into a yoga pose, literally. This is with no exaggeration. I have in person, in many different teacher training contexts, worked with injury management. I've taught many trainings, just like the training that I'm teaching now. In fact, the training, A Better Way to Flow, that I'm celebrating and I would love for you to join, is inspired by over a decade of teaching this work in person. One of the questions that I would ask everybody at the beginning of one of these trainings is, raise your hand if you have been injured receiving a manual adjustment. I have asked this literally to well over a thousand students. There has never been in any workshop or training where I've asked this question, less than 40% of the people that have raised their hand. 40% of the people that have made it to an advanced training who have been injured by manual adjustments, everybody, that's a bad number. Can you imagine this? Imagine trying to convince someone that they should do yoga. Hey, listen, yoga's amazing, makes you stronger, more mobile, has greater philosophical insight. It's this incredible process of gaining greater self-knowledge and insight. It was kind of born and evolved in India, and now it's perfused through the world. It's amazing. You'll feel great. You'll love it. Now, if you practice for a long time, there's probably around a 40% chance that a, a teacher's gonna press you too far into a yoga pose, but it's okay, you, you, you'll probably be fine. You're just like, that'll just hurt for like eight weeks or maybe forever if it's a hamstring attachment injury, but it's totally worth it. The number is terrible. And so the reality is this, everybody. If 
you just want to have a takeaway of, I want this yoga room that I am conducting to be as safe as possible. Just don't press people deeper into poses. They can take themselves deeper into poses. And just pressing people deeper into the pose doesn't necessarily provide them with a, with a larger benefit other than admittedly the benefit of kind of feeling a space within their body that they haven't felt. But as a yoga teacher, we have to really weigh these pros and cons. Another thing is, everybody, you can also provide basic manual adjustments where you're not pressing people deeper into poses. If you are a hands-on teacher, you can use hands to provide resistance. You can use hands to make people actually work a little bit harder in a pose. You can use hands just to kind of give certain directional guidances. So for those of you that are a little bit more hands-on, there's ways of maintaining this connection and this manual feedback without potentially putting students into greater harm's way. Maybe the most important of all of these other than that last one, minimizing intensification adjustments, maybe the most important best practice, and this is a massive topic in and of itself, so I'm gonna address it briefly, but is to taking stock or taking inventory of your sequencing strategy and making sure it is truly balanced. Now, I'm just gonna give you one simple example. Like I said, I am a vinyasa yoga teacher. I, I teach other styles, but mostly vinyasa yoga. And so I teach a lot of Surya Namaskar, or I route a lot of things through sun salutations. And if you take just one Surya Namaskar A, right? Like the conventional Surya Namaskar A. I'm not gonna go through all the bits, but if you take one conventional Surya Namaskar A, you have five forward folds, okay? There are five forward folds or hip and spinal flexion poses in one Surya Namaskar A compared to one backbend or hip and spine extension pose. It's a five to one ratio. That does not mean Surya Namaskar A is bad or wrong or it's gonna give your students a repetitive stress injury. However, if I do five Surya Namaskar A's or 10 Surya Namaskar A's or more multiple times per week, multiple times per month, multiple years in a row, in even just that one scenario, I'm setting up a dynamic where I'm repeating certain actions of the body forward flexion of the hips and forward flexion of the spine in great in, in, a, in a very imbalanced ratio compared to cultivating the opposite. So I'm spending so much time engaging the hip flexors, but lengthening and disengaging the hamstrings. I'm spending so much time bringing the spine into a little bit of forward flexion and engaging anterior core, but lengthening the backside. And what are some of the most common yoga-generated injuries in the modern world, overstretch injuries of the backside, hamstring attachment injuries, piriformis outlet injuries, sacroiliac issues, lower back issues. Are all of these coming from too many forward bends and too few back bends? I'm not willing to say that, but this is an obvious imbalance. 
So for me as a yoga teacher, I have to take that seriously and I have to step back and say to myself, I'm not getting rid of Surya Namaskar A, but what can I do to round it out? If I'm gonna spend a lot of time stretching and lengthening my hamstrings, my lower back, if I'm gonna spend a lot of time stretching and lengthening those outer hips, then I need to create a commensurate amount of strength and engagement in those muscles. So we wanna take a step back as yoga teachers and just be honest with ourselves and just make assessments and we don't have to be perfect. We're not gonna have some like AI generated algorithm, my God, well maybe we were, but where, where we just have like this, if you do X, you do Y. But it doesn't take much, especially if you're a flow teacher or if you're a, a in Ashtangi or some other style of yoga, if you're, it doesn't take much to kind of ask yourself, what are the actions and movements that I'm doing a lot of? What are the actions and movements that I'm not doing much of? Can I get away with a little bit fewer of the things I'm doing a lot of? And, and can I start to can I start to backfill? Can I start to increase the 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 volume of poses or actions or strengtheners that I'm not quite doing enough. Those of you that practice with me on GLOW or other, or, or, or other environments, those of you that study with men trainings, you, you see this all the time. You know that I am 100% committed to making sure that the actions that we do over time, not just in one class, but over time are balanced and very well represented. Another really important best practice is, and I, and I feel like of all of these things, a lot of us in the modern yoga world just do a really good job of this, probably, probably even more so uh, than in a more historical setting. But this best practice is to normalize and encourage our students' process of taking options. Everybody, we have to empower our students. And, and this can be tricky, right? Because as a teacher, we, we need to teach. We need to provide information. We, we want to educate our students. And the reality is we, we know more at least about the conventional process of doing postures than most of our students there. We're, we're there to teach many things, including postural technique in asana. That's a component of Hatha yoga traditions. It always has been. And yet, there are so many more people practicing now with so many more different body types that as a yoga teacher, I know that I don't know how my students feel in every pose they do. So, as affirming and as clear as I want to be with technique and as much as I want to communicate and, and teach you and teach my students because I get really passionate and excited about communicating information. It's what I feel really inspired. It's what I really love to do. But I have to tell my students regularly, yoga shouldn't hurt. Hey everybody, welcome to class. We're going to do a bunch of stuff. I'm going to challenge you. And just a quick reminder, Yoga shouldn't hurt. We always have options. 
I will give you many options. And if in class I don't give you an option or a modification that helps, just back out and stop doing the pose and come up to me after class and let me help you troubleshoot the challenge. That's just a little example, everybody, of ways that we can just simply help our students be empowered, focus on self-regulation, know that they're in a learning environment, and at the same time, their sensory feedback and their wellness is absolutely paramount. This is not something we can say enough. This just isn't something that we can say enough. And so the more we can communicate this and embody it, the better. Another integral technique, and this is actually not a single technique, but an incredibly important best practice is to focus on stabilization techniques. Let's just take a moment of quick context. If you are teaching yoga anywhere from hot yoga or Bikram or Ashtanga or Vinyasa flow all the way down to yin or restorative, like that, that sensory curve or that demand curve, I can promise you you're going to help your students become more flexible. Like in all of those environments, you are going to help lengthen and open up your students. Thank God we all need it or most people need it and it's a lot of feeling good. So as a teacher, pretty much of any modern modality, you're gonna help your students become more flexible. Also help them be more stable. I got to a place in my teaching career where I just realized there was so much implicit emphasis on length and opening and range that I had to make sure that I started filling in the opposite, that I helped my students be strong, that I helped my students be stable, that I helped my students be able to have the stability to tolerate the kind of, the kind of lengthening or tensile stressors that I was presenting them. In simple terms, I no longer really felt comfortable just helping people be good at getting more flexible and long. I, I also realized that doesn't feel whole to me. So if I'm gonna help you get good at getting long, I also wanna help you be good at getting a little bit stronger. Along with these kind of dovetails right into our next best practice, everybody, which is to truly incorporate strengthening poses, strengthening actions, and active range of motion techniques. Now again, everybody, this is a quick reminder because this is easy to like forget. We, we, I think we often in this day and age, not just with yoga, but the, the world we're in, we get involved in very polarized or polarizing uh, narratives. Quick reminder. We can be for something without necessarily being against something else. I am for strengthening, stabilization, and active range of motion techniques. I am not against passive range of motion. I'm not against stretching. 
I'm not against letting go and unwinding. Those are really valuable for most people, especially as they affect the ability to downregulate and restore the nervous system. But they're, they're so implicit to our process. Again, there's so much lengthening, there's so much stretching, there's so much passive range of motion that as teachers, we wanna be really good at understanding how do we help our students be strong? How do we help our students be a little bit more engaged in their poses? How do we help our students develop more active range of motion so that their body is more robust? Think about this, everybody. Imagine someone was like, Imagine you had a young child and they came in and they were pulling on some like really light piece of fabric. Like imagine you had like the, like an organza. Yeah, I know what silk organza is. I watch Project Runway, okay. But imagine they had like something like a taffeta. Yeah, I know them all, okay. It's, it's the Project Runway me. Okay, so just pulling on these. And if there was value in there, you'd be like, oh, oh, dude, please don't pull that. Why? Because it's not a robust enough material to withstand those stressors without distortion. Imagine on the other hand, someone came in and was pulling on Lycra, right? The kid kind of pulling on Lycra, right? Or something like this with a high elastic profile, strong, robust material. You're not as concerned, are you? Because, it, because that material can withstand a greater tensile and torsional set of forces without distortion. So if we want to actually help our students be long and more mobile and more supple, totally. Let's also actually help minimize injuries by making sure they're strong too. Along with these techniques, and, and this, this is kind of the final best practice, and I hope this one isn't too fuzzy or vague to end with because it's, it's actually a, a, a very broad, it's a, it's a really broad concept. But earlier in this conversation, I said that the body is really a, a stress distributing device. The body is a lot of things. I, I don't mean to be reductionist. But from a structural perspective, our body has to withstand the forces of gravity, air pressure, ground reaction force. And so our body has evolved in such a way so that the stressors that are being transmitted through it are distributed. Think about the span of a bridge, or like I said earlier, like a, a well-designed constructed building that, that can withstand various uh, elemental forces. In those situations, th those environments are offloading stress. They're distributing stress. They're not concentrating stress. And, and even when we kind of, this is, this takes us into this experience too of yoga being a, a union, even just within the self, right? If I, in my yoga pose, in a forward bend, am only loading up my hamstring attachment, if I'm in a forward bend and I just feel a lot of stress in my hamstring attachment and I have a yoga teacher pressing on me a little bit more, compare that experience to me being in a yoga pose where I'm creating little adjustments so I feel my calves, I feel my hamstrings, not just the attachment, but the whole length of the hamstrings. I'm engaging my hamstrings a little bit. I feel my spinal muscles, I'm breathing, and my, and my, and my teacher is 
encouraging me to listen to my body and to feel and breathe. Which one of those environments has a has like a more likely on-ramp to an injury? Which one has a more likely off-ramp? The more that we're able to feel the feeling of our whole body when we practice, the more we're able to distribute the stressors when we practice, the more we're able to not just feel, whoa, this is super intense in this one spot, the the more we're able to get that distributed rather than concentrated stress, the more likely we are to be safe and stable in those poses. I have learned as a teacher and as a student so much from my injuries. In ways, everybody, I don't want us to think injuries are just this net negative. Like, There's so much that I can share with you because I've been injured. There's so much that different teachers can share with their students because they've been injured. It, it in a way, it builds empathy. Um, and, and with training, it also builds insight and technique and skill and all these things. At the same time, no one wants it. I have, been, I have injured myself so many times over the years in yoga that I can, I can sit here in front of you and, and go through this list and, and go through these scenarios, not just because I've learned them from the outside, from good teachers and doctors of sports medicine and doctors of physical therapy that I've worked with for years, but, I, but also because I've experienced these things. At the same time, all we want as teachers is our students to not have to go through those things because being injured in your yoga practice, you know, a lot of people, that's the end of their practice. And again, not to put too much pressure on you, in- injuries are complicated and, and we're not going to find some perfect world where no one ever hurts their body or has a challenge. At the same time, good alignment and all of these other best practices, they're really things for us as yoga teachers to refine, to implement, to focus on, because ultimately we just want our students to be well. We want our students to be healthy. We want our students to be happy. We want our students to live a good life and to have a good experience in their yoga practice and and be able to make this a cornerstone of their ongoing life and wellness. Final plug, I am, as I said earlier, relaunching a better way to flow injury management in the yoga room It's an incredibly comprehensive course. You can find much more information about it in the link below and on my website, jasonyoga.com. But it has over 15 hours of really professionally recorded video, over 100 pages of a manual. Each month for 12 months, we have a new 30-minute practice based on injury management and practice sustainability. We look at managing issues with the knees, the hips, the hamstrings, the sacroiliac, the lower back, the shoulders. We go through this massive array of yoga postures, everything from pigeon pose and lotus to forward bends, back bends. And it's just a a really comprehensive way to be more informed and more helpful for your students. So if you're interested in learning more, amazing. I'd love for you to join the course. Otherwise, I hope just this conversation today just 
kind of leads you inward to be that much more reflective and insightful uh, and inspired to help your students be well.